Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today we have Tanya Kari, who is a member of the International Paralympic Committee Hall of Fame, the Finnish Sports Hall of Fame. She's a 10-time Paralympic gold medalist, 12 medals total, is now the Director of Adaptive Sports and Recreation, overseeing the program Technology, Recreation, Access, Independence, Lifestyle, Sport, uh, or trails, as it is commonly referred to, but is doing some amazing stuff with uh, the Nelson Center, uh, Nielsen Center here in, in Salt Lake City, the Rehabilitation Center. Uh, just an amazing person, amazing athlete, but doing some really super cool stuff. Tanya, thank you for joining us. Chris, thanks for the invite. I'm happy to join you and, and be part of this. We were actually in the same class. We got inducted into the International Paralympic Committee Hall of Fame back in Vancouver in 2010. So we go way back. We go way back. And honestly, I was thinking the other day that I think you and I were on the stage 2002 Paralympic Games closing ceremonies at the same time. For some reason, we were on that stage at the same time. I can't remember why. I can't remember. There was a lot of buildup to those games. Then we competed. Then yeah. you got to closing ceremonies. And then it seemed like you were just going wherever people were, were pointing you. But can we take a step back? Like you started in Finland. One of the things, there are two things about your career in Finland that kind of blew me away. One, as a cross-country skier, you were in the top 30, a cross-country skier missing her arm. You were in the top 30 in Finland of all cross-country skiers. That, that, that is true, Chris. And, and typically, and that's like Finnish nationals and in the women's category there, the typical participation numbers can be from 100 to 120, 30 skiers at the nationals and yeah i was on top 30 a few times i think my best um best uh, result was 24th and it was like 15 seconds and you are closer to the position number then so i was competing at pretty high level there which was only good for me as an athlete because um you know obviously things have changed quite a bit today there's more opportunities for uh Nordic skiers with disability to compete at different levels um, internationally. And, you know, that way in Finland, I had races every weekend. I had 30 to 40 races in the season and only, let's say, five to 10 out of those, those were um, related to Paralympic Games or World Championships or World Cups. So um, that was good fit for me. There's no reason why not to. My impairment is nothing. Well, I mean, cross-country skiing, so much of it is about being symmetrical mm -hmm. and missing one arm makes being symmetrical a whole lot more challenging. So I'd imagine leg-wise you had to do, how did you end up as a cross-country skier? When you first started out, did you gravitate toward that? You were saying hockey and we're going to get into floorball at some point too. Yeah, you know, um, so I'm a 70s kid growing up in Finland, right? And cross-country skiing at that time was everything during throughout my whole career time as an athlete. Um, it, you could compare it with the status of American football in, in, in the U.S. So um, basically good skiers were almost like gods and goddesses and uh, just admired. And, it, you know, it, it's just that world where skiing was everything cross-country skiing specifically so, so that's why you decided to to move toward cross-country skiing that that's not really that but you know obviously you are surrounded by that sport quite a bit in every way around and I was really good at it from the moment I put skis on I think it, I was three or four years old my mom said that man you really skied right from the get like right there and then it was just natural for me and um you know, I mean, you are a little different kid in the 70s. You go to school, 
obviously the other kids kind of look at you and they're like well that one has only one arm and and starts and you know but if you're good at sports and by the way I was really good at every single sport we did sport is just my thing or was my thing so you 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 are equal with, with with the peers you have with your 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 school buddies with your friends it was easy to get to equal levels, sort to say, with them through sports. And and you went to your high school was was a sports academy as well, right? So how did that work? Was there an entrance to get into it? Yeah. So um, still, as of today, if you want to get to this sports academy track, you have to have really good papers from school, which I think is super important for every athlete to remember to do the school part well. But then there's specific application process at that point. So they, they review your school grades, obviously. They review your um, training commitment, how long have you been training, obviously results. It's just paper, black and white. This is how I've been skiing. These are my times. These, this is how I, how, how I did. And, uh, and all that put together and then an interview process. And then there was the selection process. So I, I made it through amongst I mean I was the only one at that point who had impairment disability um, but I made it through and uh, I was able to combine my uh, education and training for the next three years really well and that was pretty crucial in my development as an athlete. When did you know that you were going to be in sports because it's it's one of those you you knew that you wanted to be an athlete and you were always a good athlete coming through and you went through and you trained with the top athletes in Finland in the marquee sport. But it looked like from, from looking at your resume that, that you had decided early on that you wanted to be in sport as a career as well. When did you make that decision? You know, it started naturally to go to that direction, perhaps because I had the interest of every single sport. And by the way, in cross-country skiing, you combine so many sports in training so that it's kind of easy to actually understand how cool the other sports are, too. So what do you mean by combining all the sports? So you so you do a lot of, uh, let's say, obviously, roller skiing as a trial and training. You can do kayaking, weightlifting, running. Uh, even soccer, playing soccer sometimes. And you, you just can combine multiple sports to build up your training week. So um, so naturally, I got familiar with, with other sports as well. But I was just always fascinated by, by sports. And then, you know, obviously, it took different dimensions. Like when I headed to the University of Uvascula, I was so set that I'm going to go with the coaching track. And instead, I changed it to more like sports management and sociology and that type of stuff. I'm like, you know, I'm full of heart rates and max VO2 and this and that already from my training and competing. And I'm kind of starting to go away more from that uh, coaching track at that point. And I decided to start, I, I just started to think sport bigger than just the kind of the training and the the com- competition uh, world of it to get more into the sports management side of it because you've you've been an athlete and amb- an athlete ambassador uh but you know I mean you've done so many other things I mean a classifier working with WADA uh working with so many different organizations with the International Paralympic Committee with uh Salt Lake uh, County Parks and Recreation with this with you know I mean it's just it's amazing so did you did you is that what you mean like going away from the coaching side well not specifically like I I still have been coaching and I'm I'm actually coaching as we speak too but but to have coaching as your kind of professional career let's say that that's that's the track that I shifted away and that was by choice um and 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 rather go to that management side more. So so that that is what I meant. I was very set. I was so deep down inside, just thinking all of the the training and coaching and biomechanical sides of things, and uh, 
and techniques and all of that. And uh, then I then I had that 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 year where I'm like, you know, there's more there's more cool stuff, super interesting stuff too in sports. Like I want to explore a little more. And and I kind of also found myself being in the situations where I was speaking about different things and and uh, aspects of sports. And um, I'm like, well, this this might be my thing. Maybe I should maybe I should pursue more this route. And that felt good. And that's what I did. Was it partially because of the need? I mean, it sounds like you got the ball started kind of rolling and you recognized that you were good in that position, but also some of the need of, you know, of the Paralympics, of somebody with a disability, which because a lot of your history, it sounds like you went through and you were the only one. Yeah, at that point, you know, things have changed, as you know so much as well we see athletes with disabilities paralympic athletes paralympians everywhere compared to the days uh back then but um but yeah i i could say that i was to a degree a pioneer in a lot of these areas uh in finland and you know we had had great paralympic winners and and also in cross-country skiing prior to me but but the media and the kind of the presence of them wasn't that much there wasn't that much media around them and I, I I do think for me it was easier sort of and and I'm saying easier because every athlete to a degree does need that media presence in order to build the circumstances to train around them um, but it was easier for me to sort of get that attention because I I did compete with able-bodied athletes so people it was very easy for people to compare, like understand where am I with my skiing? What level skiing am I performing here when they have the able-bodied name there? And that able-bodied name happens to be in our Olympic team or whatsoever and on top of the world. So it's easy for them to put it in kind of bigger context that this is where we are going. Right. It's not apples and oranges. These are apples and apples. There's no questions. That's the result and that's it you know, as simple as it is. And uh, I think that that is one reason why I sort of did did be, become the, the, the pioneer of this work to a degree in Finland at that point. What was it like going from sort of growing up and competing with able-bodied athletes for the most part to then competing in the Paralympics? What what was the shift like for you in terms of recognition, in terms of competition, in terms of how you saw yourself, really? You know, um, it's it's interesting because I I grew up first without even knowing that there is such a world like Paralympics, you know, or there's someone else with one arm also skiing, you know. So um, it, it was a little bit of a um, interesting kind of reality. Um, First of all, you know, you 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 are in the cross-country skiing world in Finland where it's everything, like I said. Um, and there is skiers left and right. Everywhere you go, there's skiers. You go to the Paralympic world and you realize that okay, there's there's some of us with one arms, there's some of us with no arms, and then there's portion of a leg missing. I'm just talking that language that was in that. 13-year, 14-year-old head at that point. And, and then they're all racing against each other and no one knows about us. Right. So you start to think like, well, what's the point of that? Like, you know, this is, this is cool and this is amazing what we have, but it's a story that is just not told anywhere. So that I think that was one of the biggest shocks to a degree and then you know I had already early on gotten used to a kind of a system like you have your trainings you have your I was part of a sport club you are in a team um, and there's races 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 and then we we didn't quite have that systematic system in place back in the days yet on the Paralympic side but that is completely different story today. I have to put that in in at this point too. Right. It, it's a far more similar training system for the Paralympics than it was for 
for the for the Olympics or than it, it, it now than it was back then. And the thing is that that's partially due to people like you, right? That you're coming in and you have this foundation of training. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it is. And actually, you know, if, if we look at like results back in the times I was I was racing in the Paralympic world, I was I was quite far ahead from from my competitors. And I, I actually remember even getting comments like you shouldn't be here because you're so good. And I'm like, well, I'm going to respond to that, that you should go and train more. And come back. You know, if that's the approach, you know, and, you know, athletes can be pretty cruel to each other. And, you know, you can, you can try to interrupt your your focus at the moment. But but at the same time, yes. But if you look at whether it's able bodied or whether it's it's Paralympic side, you know, the top peak, it's pretty narrow out there. And that's it. And that's always going to be part of um, elite sport. There's no way around it. The more more we build around that, you know, top peak, the better off we are in every way around. But it is always probably going to be pretty narrow. It's always going to be narrow. I mean, that's the definition of it, right? When you get to the top, there are very few people at the top. But that said, we need the trailblazers like you who show people the possibility. <laughs> they were saying, oh, you're too good. You shouldn't be here. And I love your response of, no, you should train harder. Like I've shown you what I can do. And there's nothing that says that you can't do it better than I'm doing it. You just haven't had the training. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I always uh, have to like tell people the fact that in my mind, then at the end of the day, made me an athlete is that I absolutely fell in love with what I do with my sport you know not every single training feels good right and it shouldn't you should to a degree people say that you're from the sport that doesn't look fun it feels horrible and it's like disgusting but but you know that it's such a beautiful sport and I I absolutely love it every way around. And I fell in love with every single thing I do. I was nothing but looking forward to every single training session, which quite often was two to three times a day. And, and that, that's that the, the moment I kind of was okay with my sport, it wasn't only like result driven, and gold medal driven but it was what am i in this moment with my sport and when that was all lined up my results got so much better on the result list at that moment too it was incredible improvement that happened how did that work because i mean one we've got to give a little bit of background in some ways nordic skiing cross-country skiing is one of the hardest sports out there in that you're using both your upper body and your lower body. So you're using both systems at the same time and your heart kind of caught in the middle is like, oh, wow, I have to send blood and oxygen to all of these systems to keep this whole thing running. So it is really, really hard. What's the part that you that you fell that you fell in love with i mean you talk about you fell in love with the sport because it can be a really painful mm -hmm. sport but it is is it the identity your identity with regard to the sport or being able to push yourself beyond what you thought you could do or what what really attracted you to the sport it has it has multiple dimensions but yes so we have in, in stand-up skiing, cross-country skiing, you have classic and you have free technique, right? And within each one of those, you have multiple techniques. And then depending on the snow conditions, on the, on the course and the spot on the course where you are, you just change techniques and you kind of, it, it just becomes this beautiful dance <laughs> to say. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's described cross-country skiing as dancing, but it really is. It, and honestly, Every cross-country skier should go dancing because it helps you in this sport. But it, it it is technically very demanding sport, but that's the beauty of it too. And obviously then the other side is, you know, all the sports that I described, and you have to put quite a bit of hours in your year for this sport. 
I learned to love the the feeling of training. Like it didn't matter really what training it was and what sport I was using. And and the moment you are in you and you felt this, I know you have felt this because I've seen you skiing. Um, when you are in your prime condition, it just seems like you are just in this complete flow and it, it's just even if it's not easy it feels like everything's easy you're like partially just breathing through your nose right even if your heart rate is 180 or whatsoever so all of that combined it's just like i fell in love with all of it and i i you know some people ask sometimes like if you could do a couple of things like what would they be i'm like one is a training week or two where you would just train and sleep and eat right just to go back to those times and the other week would be uh helping acdc to get ready for a concert <laughs> those those are two slightly different things yeah they are i don't know it would be fun <laughs> how would you help acdc to get ready for a concert i, I would carry the um, uh, loudspeakers and help setting up the stage and i don't know i love the band i would do anything that is awesome. That is absolutely, that, that is not an answer that I was expecting. But those are like two kind of dreamy things. Obviously, there's multiple others, but those are kind of like probably something that I won't get back or I never really helped ACDC to get ready. But No, and, and that one I can't relate to, but it's interesting that you say to go back and do a week of training where it is just all of the training, which from the outside can seem like so much work. Yeah. That, oh, you're doing two a days and, you know, or whatever, two or three a days or whatever. And you're eating, you're sleeping, you're, you're training. And that's pretty much it. You know, you take a shower here and there. And, but that to me, it's funny when I look back on it, those are the times that I miss mm -hmm. are the training times more than I miss like the top competition times. And it sounds like it's the same for you. Yeah, it is the same. It's, you know, once you choose that uh, that life to a degree uh, and you do the commitment, it's, and you pour yourself into it, um, it's, and, and, you know, if I give 100% of myself to what I do, you you most likely will see the result. And you most likely get the award. In my case, the award was this being one with what you do and loving it. So, um, yeah, it, it's, yeah, training week or two, Chris, we have to, we have to figure it out. <laughs> we can do, we can, we can create a camp or something like that, a retreat, you know, get off, get off of all your devices and just go out and train. And yeah. how much did that mentality of being an athlete who loved the training and being being at one with yourself how much did that translate to what you're doing now where you're giving opportunities to you know in the outdoors to people uh with activities teaching people activities you know certainly we want to talk about the tetra ski as well too where you're working with the technology but how much did that mentality translate into what you're doing now I think it does quite a bit. And, you know, obviously um, here I am reviewing my work with you. And I, I honestly think that uh, some of our participants should be answering some of these questions. But, you know, getting getting into this program and, and we basically build it from just pure thoughts and ideas. And, and here we are 16 years later. But um, I... Um, it was an eye-opening to to understand how to a decree easy for me it was to to build what I built around my my skiing in the context of of my impairment being very minimal you know um there's much bigger things going on in this world than this um but I I am I am trying to um do everything in this program like I was doing my training. You know, it's it's not okay to just uh, 
have someone get in a bike or a ski or a kayak and let's just go have fun. Let's make sure we have the right piece of equipment for you. Let's make sure you're fitted right into it. And let's make sure that this piece of equipment supports your ability, your um, impairment to perform the best so that you are not fighting with the equipment, but the equipment is supporting you doing what you want to do. Majority of the able-bodied people can go to a sports store or whatever and try out some equipment and, and go with what they like. It's not the same thing in adaptive sports world. That's why no. we build the opportunities for them to try out, to, to get fitted, to, to, to have multiple sessions in. It, it can't be just a one-time experimental thing. And they, then we go from there. That's the starting point. So what exactly do you do? So so we talked a little bit about, or I talked a little bit in the introduction about the trails program, but then you're also working with the Craig H. Nelson uh, Rehabilitation Center as well, which last, was it last week? Did you give us a tour last week or was it the week before? I Couple forget weeks now. Ago, yeah, you, you guys visited and we saw just a minor portion of it, but this program is out of the, the Craig H. Nielsen Rehabilitation Hospital. However, um, we welcome other parties. You don't have to be our patient to, to be able to get involved with the program. Basically, membership is complex physical disability. Anyone having that can, can participate in the programming. And I, I, I always like to, to kind of describe us as a multi-sport club. You have a multi-sport club. Yeah, okay. you have multiple sports running year-round. Some are seasonal, some are year-round programs, and multiple times a week. So no, no one-time thing is in this program. So it's basically a, a sports exercise program, education program, um, um, built to support um, folks with complex physical disabilities and and gives them opportunities to create an active lifestyle. Exactly. And so you're getting with the rehab center, you're, it's a spinal cord injury center. So so these are people who, in a lot of ways, their their lives, their perspective on their lives has has changed completely. I mean, I remember, you know, for me, it was a question of, could I still be active? Sports was a huge part of my life. But yet the association, because you don't have any education as you're coming, as you're coming through life, you're not thinking, oh, well, I know about people in wheelchairs and I know what they're going through. I mean, obviously the Paralympics are far more visible now than they were when we started, but how much is the sport part integral in the rehabilitation of the individual? I think, yeah, at the, by the way, we, we, spinal cord injury is one of the, the diagnostic groups that we see at the, at the rehab center. There's other, other ones too, TBI, stroke, amputees, and, and so on and so on. So what, uh, this actually reminds me a little bit of the, the Stoke Mandeville and Paralympic game starter, Sir Ludwig Goodman back in uh, early, late sixties and such, and, and introducing, um, just finding sports for for um, patients who who had spinal cord injuries. That's how that's how the whole Paralympic movement started, right? And uh, we, back in '48, really, right? So it was 1948. Yeah, parallel to right. Stoke Man, what became yeah. the Stoke Mandeville Games, started the same day that London did back in 1948. Yeah, you're right. I'm 20 years late. Um, so um, yeah, so. Basically, we built in the, the, the uh, sports and exercise is playing as crucial role as any other um, rehabilitation activities, PT, OT, speech, and so on. So um, we have a whole team that is dedicated to promote sports and exercise um, in the rehabilitation team. And, and quite often, like for example, last Friday, I, I met with six inpatients down at the mobility garage that you visited right. and, and showed them some pieces of equipment, talked about the program. We looked at some videos and we talked about the fact that yes, you know, your life has changed and it has changed a lot. It is not, not something that we 
wish or we can predict or we can expect to happen and it can happen at any given point to any of us, right? And, you know, we, we tease out if there are sports people like, surprisingly, a lot of the newly injured patients have biking accidents in Idaho. So I don't know what's going on with biking in Idaho, but that was that was majority of the patients that I saw on Friday. And is this mountain biking or, mountain or road biking, biking? Yeah, mountain biking. So we, we we did take a look at mountain bikes, road bikes. There's um, kayaking, sailing opportunities, skiing opportunities, depending how far post injury you are. And and we talked about the fact that you know um, a lot of the equipment is a little different than you used to do prior to your injury, but it's still worth giving it a try. That it's you you got you. You have to be open to see this in a different eyes, and uh, and and obviously we can't force anyone to get into this track. But uh, I I try to tell people that usually people have been pretty thankful that they did give it a try, and they they majority of the people do stick with it. There's very few people who never want to get back into anything and that's i'm not judging them at all that is obviously up to up to these people themselves to make the decisions but we are there to support in this this um uh, uh first experiment and then get into regular um recreation exercise programs if if they choose to do so and i think getting it right from the moment we get into something is crucial that's where that fitting and the multiple options for equipment and the multiple options of opportunities play a huge role. Yeah, I mean, like, because it's so easy to do it badly, right? It's not like if you want a bike, it's not like you just go to your local bike shop and get a hand cycle. That doesn't happen. But it's also, it's easy for things not to fit correctly. So for you to go out and wear, you know, cross-country ski boots that are three sizes too big to go out and cross-country, like even you are not going to have a very good time going out and skiing like that. But sometimes that's what what people have in the past. That's what people have experienced is kind of getting introduced to a sport but not necessarily getting a chance to really fall in love with it or feel like you're you're connected with the equipment. So what I was amazed at when you gave us our tour was the garage that you're talking about where you have the ability to help fit people into their equipment. It's not just one size fits all and good luck. Go ahead. We hope you have a great time. This is yeah. we're gonna ensure you're, you have a really good time. Where, where did that, I mean, obviously there's a huge need for that, but it's also a really challenging thing to achieve. How did that come about that you were able to give people such a great opportunity right at the beginning? So it's it's a lot of brainstorming and, and, and there's a full team behind this. It's not, not only me as a sports person figuring this out, but we have like a described earlier PTs, OTs, medical doctors, respiratory therapists, whoever is needed, figuring it out. And for me, it is super crucial to, to be able to understand the level of injury or the disability or the diagnosis we are talking about, to, to, to put it in this, this context of sports and equipment, right? So often you see we have, let's say that we have a bike fitting coming up. We, we, we study the background of this participant we figure out, do we need here a PT for that as well? Do we need an OT? Who do we need here for that? We lay out the full table of different pieces that we can swap out from these bikes or whatever the equipment is. Plus we can start out with 10 different options of bikes and we start to tease out like, which one do we go with to start with? And you know, once, once participants get stronger and better, depending on the, on the, on the level of injury and what the diagnosis is, we might change into other equipment then that might work better at some point. And, and you know, honestly, the, the uh, ideal situation is it happens often that after a couple of years, we figured out that this is exactly your piece of equipment. And then there's phenomenal grant 
grants and foundations in this country available for people to apply for their own piece of equipment. And this is part of the process too, that we really wanna create people as independent as possible with us. So that, you know, it's kind of like a good coach, Chris, you know this, a good coach makes him or herself not needed at some point. So, you know, with, with those cases who can move on um, and, and sort of leave us and graduate, that's job well done, I feel like. You know, with some cases, and that's, that's, that's with the Tetra ski and stuff, and you're talking about such high complex level injuries that, you know, to a certain degree, the support system is needed at all times, but that is okay too. But it's okay. I mean, it's it's great the the objective, right? The objective of you as the as the coach, you know, you and I'm saying you, the collective you, to to effectively make yourself obsolete, to to promote that sense of independence, to get somebody started, and and let them be able to move on their own. To me, that that is is a great and noble pursuit too, you know, because, because sometimes it's really hard because as the support people, you want to feel like you're needed all the time, but to know that your objective is, no, we want to help this person to be independent and to be able to create effectively on their own. How does it work? You've mentioned the Tetra ski. This is, and, and we've been talking thematically in some ways about this, like that you were able to to become a cross-country skier without any adaptation. You don't wear a prosthetic arm, you just use one pole and two skis. And so it's kind of like, you know, I'd imagine there, there was a learning curve early on. It sounds like you were pretty good at it, but you might've learned, so, learned the balance part of it so early on that you don't remember the, you know, the, the difficulty or you were just such a little kid that difficulty is just difficulty. And you're like, oh, who cares? So we just go. But but as we talked about it, the the higher the level of injury, the more adaptation is needed, mm-hmm. the greater the adaptation. And you've been able to develop the Tetra ski, which can you describe what the Tetra ski is? Because this is this is different than anything else that we've ever seen. Yeah, so the, the Tetra ski um, was developed here at the U between uh, our medical team and uh, mechanical engineering, uh, computer, com- computer sciences. And, and, you know, this is an academic um, campus, as you know, and we are, we are an academic hospital. So we have a lot of resources where we can tap into these kind of, kind of projects. But we realized probably early, like, 2000, as early as 2006, seven, eight there, that, you know, there is certain amount of adaptive sports equipment available. And as we spoke, mostly you order online without knowing what you get. And that's it. And, you know, the rest of the group that can't use that equipment that is commercially available are then just forced to be moved by someone else. So you are basically getting dependent rights, correct? Sure, right. So that as a as a, a whole philosophy felt so strange to us that something needs to happen here. And our participants and patients challenged us. Like, I don't want to sit in a boat and someone rows me around the lake. I don't want to sit in a ski and someone skis me down the hill. That very true. So we started to brainstorm and, and Dr. Rosenbluth is a great pioneer in this. We talked about pioneers early on. So he's the pioneer of this. So, hey, let's build a ski that can be operated um, by people who don't have the, the upper core, who don't have the, the hand function necessarily. How about if they only have, they the breath control and and mouth control and and that's all that is left we have to figure out something to to fill the hole that this world has that there's absolutely nothing for these people so that's how the whole philosophy and the idea developed so the tetra ski has basically the the, the technology that power chairs have some people use uh sip and puff 
operating a power chair, right? Some people use the joystick and they operate the power chair. The Tetris key has um, electronic actuators underneath the, the seat frame and those actuators respond to the commands from the skier, whether it's through sips and puffs or whether it's through the joystick. And, and those gears decide their own terms, right? The only, you know this as an alpine skier, the only way to slow down is to make terms, right? Right. Unless, um, um, and we know what the other alternative is. Well, that was the alternative when we were first learning, right? Is, is fall, yeah. fall, that's the, that's the way to slow down. I mean, th there are other alternatives too, and we don't need to get into those. Yes, so the, the skier is, in charge of the ski, whether they are using just a mouth to control the ski or the joystick. And we have the same technology also developed around the sailboat too. So this is high level quadriplegics. So people out there, you know, Christopher Reeve kind of thing. I mean, not quite as high, but but it's something that that somebody like him could have, he could have done it, yeah. right? Yeah, with, with a sip and puff, mm -hmm. and and the sip. So so you're you're pushing the air out, and and effectively telling the ski to turn left or sucking it in and and telling the ski to turn right. It and what's different. I mean, you mentioned that it's similar to to the power wheelchairs, but this is in a far more dynamic environment where you're going down there's a side hill there's a bump there are you know whatever it is but it's also it, it, it's fulfilling on on a really personal level for for the individual because you, you know i mean if, if if i as a paraplegic thought okay well i wonder if i'm going to be able to do anything physically and you know i'd seen the boston marathon i'd seen those guys race in wheelchairs in the boston marathon so at least on some level i knew that that was the case i'd never seen a monoski until i got into a monoski yeah but this when you look at at breaking a high vertebrae in your neck you think okay well i can't move my hands i can't do this but suddenly you're you're giving them back an opportunity to to interact with the mountain in, exactly. in, in a way that people don't necessarily get a chance to. I mean, a lot of people don't get a chance to do. What's the response? What's the what's the transformation for for the people who get into the Tatruski? It is incredible, Chris. It's um, you know, you you put it in very well in words that that we are hearing, but people the 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 best feedback is to see the faces and them saying that you know it it's me skiing. It this is this is this is skiing, you know it doesn't have to even have more words than those three. This is skiing. Yeah, you know it, it tells it all. And it's, it's, it's not the, the fact, and we know what we are after here to, to create, to give an opportunity for these people to do something they are in charge of. And in this case, we are talking about sports, right? And, 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 and they can decide and all the, and, and the best part also is for, for, especially for people like you and I who understand the meaning of training and the more they ski and train, the better they come in this. So it is exactly the same. And, and some of these gears, we hosted our first race. I mean, that was, that was absolutely naturally the next step after we had done this recreationally for multiple years, we were like, let's go and race. Like, these people, we have to be able to look outside of the box and start to do define athletes in new ways and see who all can be athletes, right? And and unfortunately, and I challenge the whole Paralympic world, we need to have more opportunities for individuals with this level injuries to be athletes and compete. I don't think we are doing good enough job in that. And and this totally is one way one sport where we are doing it right now and and you should have seen the race oh my gosh uh people are like multiple people within a second 
some people crashing down the gates and some nicely going around them. And at first they were a big trial and it was phenomenal. I was just like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of known as a hardcore, no emotions person to a degree, like stoic Finnish person, but I was speechless. I was just in tears when I watched it. It touched me big time. Well, it has to, because this is sport. Mm -hmm. For people who don't have the ability, for some of these people who don't have the ability to feed themselves. Yeah. So, but yet they're able to go down the hill and you know, it, it begs the question that you've been an athlete for so much of your life and it's so easy. You do so much of the training. It's so easy for us to look at the physical side of what you do. You're building that physical side. But I think we also know that the most successful athletes are the ones who are the strongest mm -hmm. in their mind. Yeah. And so it's not the physical, it's the mind. And so this is this is giving an opportunity, giving that mental opportunity to perform, to, to replicate. I'm, I'm trying to trying to describe it in a way, but but to be able to to have the mind and the body connected again. And so exactly. the strength in yeah. their mind is able to do, is able to make the physical happen. Yes, it's it's up to them. And it's up to them to think the course and think, what do I need to do to win this race? I don't, I'm not saying that every athlete came there to just win the race, right? But it got so competitive, Chris, that that, that side was... Uh, was there you could you could feel it you could totally feel it and not only they cannot feed themselves by themselves there's a machine breathing on behalf of some of those gears so there were a couple a uh, couple of people on ventilators um racing so so yes it it, it, it i and, and the feedback we got from all of the skiers is like oh my god this there's no way in this planet i I would have imagined that I would be racing and I'm not the person on the sidelines. There's, there's hundreds of people cheering for me and watching me racing. And, you know, at the same time, it is, it's not all about that race, obviously, in this case, it, it was a, to a degree, I sense that this is a like big message to the world that, you know, when we have all of these technology in this world, when we have all of the system place for, for able-bodied people and for people like you and me, Chris, too, why not to have it in place for people who've been, who haven't had the opportunities for way too long? To, to allow them to, to flourish. And it really is flourishing because watching, it's not merely a direction change there's actually the ski is is doing what the ski is supposed to do the ski is is on edge underneath the tetra ski and and is actually so so it's actually because for me as an alpine skier there's an aesthetic there's a beauty i mean you talk about dancing in cross-country ski I, I often talk about alpine skiing as being like ballet in some ways that yeah. It's all based on time, right? The only way you win is based on time. It doesn't matter how good you look, but there's a part of it that what you do physically is is, is how you actually go faster. And there is an inherent beauty to yeah. that. And not Absolutely. only is this moving from the top of the sport, but there's but there's a there's a beauty to that and a physical beauty, which is which is amazing. How does it work? on the sailing side because you've done the tetra ski is the, is the sailing is the sailing as far along as the tetra ski is or not uh, tetra ski is a little further than the than the sailboat but the sailboat is well on its way there a little fine tuning here and there and um it it's totally ready to go but it's you know but it's the same concept with sailing you play with the wind right right so our participants are able to furlough the sail and then control uh, playing with the wind with it. Really? So they're able to, to work the tiller and trim the sails yeah. and, and that kind of thing. And Yeah. And if, there's, if there is no wind, 
let's say we we sometimes hit that uh, <laughs> that especially the morning hours at at these mountain lakes. Then there's then there's kind of a motor yeah, that you can. The motor is meant to get you off the off the shore and to the lake, and you open up your sails and you know find the wind and start to sail. But um, if if there is no windy day, you can still cruise around with uh, with the motor too. So those who you it, let's say let's say let's play that we don't have any windy day and and there's no sailing there's still a way to to go around the, the lake for someone who can't use the kayak necessarily um and and roam around with the motor and the, and the sailboat but sailing is a sport that to me is, is such a mental sport it's such a which way is the wind coming which way is the tide going uh, it, it's amazing. There's so many. There's so many different thought processes that go into sailing well. Yeah, yeah. There, there. I'm, I'm not a sailor myself, and I don't know the sport very well. But gladly, I'm happy that we have a team who does know sailing well. So, but yeah, it, it is. And you know, it's. I mean, even the fact that you are just up in the mountains and on a lake, and you are in control of that boat itself. And and this is this is something that we haven't pushed competitively at least yet. And and we know that what is sailing status in the Paralympics now? It's out, I think. Is it? I I I, I don't know. I don't know. That's what I think. But uh, but anyway, we haven't pushed that um, competitively. But you know, sailing is it, it's a huge sport, and, and people that definitely it's its own kind of world. And we, we've had some sailors who are back to sailing. They used to sail. They are back to sailing. We have some who are learning the sport and everything is good. No, it doesn't matter what it is. Everything in between. It's all good. It, we, are, we are here to, to kind of provide the opportunities and support people with their goals. And uh, whether whether it's skiing or sailing and whether you personally to the competitive route or not, if if we can somehow support that journey in between and make it right, and you know, and you know, it once people take it to competitive level, at some point, it's kind of up to them more than to us. But um, with with this kind of technology development and with these type of higher level injuries, there is going to be a huge role for people like us to make it happen. And and that is kind of a one side of the competitive world that we have to rethink too. Well, I mean, the competition is going to happen. Yeah, you know how that works, right? People yeah. people start doing then then okay, let's compete. Let's see if we can go faster. And sailing is an interesting one that is based more on the boat mm-hmm. than anything else. And if you give somebody the opportunity to race against like boats, then they have a level playing field. And yeah, and so that's. Even more than the skiing, it doesn't mean that you're racing against someone with a disability or not. You can just go and race against someone who has a similar boat. So it'd be really interesting to see yeah. how how that progresses and just opening up an entirely new world. You guys have done such amazing things. How... How how have you been able to do this? I mean, it, it sounds like you you asked the question of you know how do we make it? How do we make it work? How do we open it up? But it's also I mean you, you've risen to the top of of rehab centers throughout the country in a relatively short period of time. How how have you been able to do this? Like with some of your partners and and because I mean if you're talking about having twelve bikes and you're having all these possibilities of you can do this and we can do that. That costs some money. I mean, to have that. That cost and those 12 bikes, by the way, was just the example that we might pull in into fun fitting. We actually do have 40 plus bikes. <laughs> but, you know, it's um, the, the University of Utah Hospital and Rehabilitation Center has been extremely supportive and really sees this as a part of the mission with, with patients. We, we need to be able to provide this. And and uh, we have been successful with grant writing, getting all all the equipment is grant funded uh, at this point, and we we are not charging any participant any fees for any of the activities we do. Um, we are right now in order for us to get more of the Tetra skis and the sailboats out in the world. We are we are hoping to raise more funds to be able to do that. 
and um, and some some programs are able to to get some of that stuff uh, from us. So it's it's built here. We we obviously buy the parts too, but it's built here. So there is a cost obviously for us to build these things, but we are not making any money out of them. We just simply want to get them out and and get the opportunities um, to expand. Because you're doing R and D in house, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the frame itself travels here from Tessier company from from France. Um, um, so it, it's a modified, it's a little bit modified from the snow cart, which is the manual version. And that is where the uh, where the um, equipment, that's probably the uh, the commer only commercially available ski that can accommodate the highest injury levels that there is right now. But then there's nothing from that on because you still need your wrists and your uh, biceps to do the uh, to the snow cart so um this year uh, uh builds us modified frames which we buy and then everything else is put together here in-house and and it's different so so I, i'm not positive about this so i'm asking the question with the snow cart it, it's not necessarily articulating right where that like the skis underneath the cart are not necessarily articulating is that something that is that is different with what you're doing where you have that independent action that is making the ski turn left or right yeah so it is it is kind of based on the snow cart chris but obviously there's a lot of science now behind with the software and that's that's more our engineer work to make sure what are the skis doing with different commands so that things are not overdone or underdone or not reacting too fast. There's different levels. There's beginner and advanced levels. And that then correlates like how fast do the actuators react and, and what are the angles that we are getting depending on the level of the skier. And you can, you can start, obviously everyone starts with the beginner, but then they progress to advanced at some point, typically. Right. And, and that, that then determines what what kind of angles are we getting? Well, I would imagine that is the exciting part that you're probably waiting a little bit for is the people who, someone who can outski the equipment to a certain extent. Yeah. And then you have to go back to the drawing board and figure, okay, how do we get back ahead of right. the athlete, which I, I would think would be really fun. This has to be for you, the journey as an athlete, as as a person involved in sport, in coaching, in officiating, in working with the anti-doping, with I mean, so you have I mean, you have so many hats with classification, which obviously is a huge part of the Paralympics. How does this bring it all kind of full circle for you? I mean, this seems like it's tapping into everything you do and everything you are. Yeah, you know it. It does, you know, a lot of the stuff that I do, that I've done with WADA, with, with IPC, they're obviously volunteer positions, but they are, they are something that we all throw passion in. When, when, when you tackle into something that matters, you throw yourself into it, right? If you feel like you have things to give, you throw yourself into it. This, is, this, is, this program is something that is, it, it's, you know, I am so grateful for everything that I have gotten from sports. And I think there should be more and more people who have the opportunity to feel the same way. And that is in its simplicity, what I feel like. But at the same time, all of this stuff needs to be done the right way. And I'm not saying that we do everything absolutely perfectly all the time. There's lessons to learn every day. There's new things to learn. As, as long as you keep your mind open to things. Um, but that's that's it. People deserve opportunities. People need opportunities. Sport is an awesome opportunity. And there's so many people who need to get more involved in this. It's we, we, For years, a, a, a lot of people, certain groups of people were closed out because there was no opportunities for them. And it's our job to change it. It is. It is. And you mentioned earlier that you loved your sport. You loved every moment of your sport. It wasn't trying to get to a place. It was enjoying the 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 enjoying the activity, enjoying the pain, enjoying 
gaining new skills. And I think it's absolutely wonderful that you're getting to take that and share it with somebody else. So thank you. It's a pretty cool job. I can't believe it's a job. It's it's awesome. I love it. Well, keep it up. Tanya, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for what you do within the community. I mean, this is just this is just absolutely spectacular. And I, I can't wait to learn more and more about what you guys are doing because you guys are right on the cutting edge. Thank you so much, Chris. It was fantastic to be here. It's awesome. Thank you to all of you for tuning in. I hope that you enjoyed our conversation. The greatest gift you can give us is to tell your friends. Tell your friends to tune in. When this becomes a podcast, if you like us, if you follow us, we'll continue to be able to give you great content and to be able to meet people like Tanya. So we'll come back next week. We'll look forward to seeing you. Thank you very much. Take care.